0: Blog Talk Radio. You might see me
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Help for HD Live. Help for You Live is brought to you by Help for HD International and is made possible by an education grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation. I am your host, Katie Jackson, and today our guests are Dr. Daniel Klaassen and Dr. Jody Corey-Bloom. Dr. Clawson is the lead investigator at HSG's Vanderbilt University Medical Center site and director of the Huntington's Disease Center of Excellence, member of the HSG Research Advisory Board, associate professor at the neurology at... at I love that. You could tell I have a cold, so bear with me, guys. Professor of Neurology at Vanderbilt University, and serves as editor of the Huntington's Disease Group biannual journal, HD Insights, which is an amazing publication. If you guys haven't seen it, you have to check it out. Dr. Corey Bloom is the lead investigator at HSC's UC San Diego Health site, a longtime member of HSC, and over 20 years of 20 years and a member of the HSG Research Advisory Board, director of the UCSC Huntington's Disease Clinic Research Program and Center of Excellence. And... Um, principal investigator, listen to this, In over 40 clinical trials, um, everyone, you know, Dr. Jody Croy-Bloom, um, we've all known her for so long and look up to her and are so thankful for everything she does, as well as Dr. Clausen, so I'm so excited to have them both on the show. Um, bear with me, like I said, I've caught a cold on my way back from Austin, Texas. Um, for all of our listeners that were there at that um, HD education event, thank you so much for coming out. We had a packed house. Um, thank you to all of our speakers and everyone, it was a huge success, and um, it was just so great being part of our community in, in Texas, so uh, thank you for everyone that came out for that. So let's jump right into the show, and let's talk about why it is important for individuals affected by HD to participate in clinical trials today, and um, I think we could start with Dr. Clausen, and then uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Corey Bloom, we can go on to you as well, uh, after Dr. Clausen.
2: Well, thank you for, for having me on your radio show. It's really a privilege to be on, especially um, talking about clinical trials. So, so you know, at our center, we we spend a lot of time talking with patients about clinical trials, and, and I I think that a lot of patients really enjoy participating in clinical trials for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is that they get to feel like they're contributing to the future of, of Huntington's disease treatments, and also in the present get to um, really go through the opportunity of of seeing if a therapy will, 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 um, will work for them or will, um, will help them in some way. So um, in, our, in our center, we, we actually um, spend a lot of time with caregivers and patients at the, at the same time, and so it ends up being a family affair, these clinical trials, and some of them last a long time. But ultimately, what we try and do is emphasize that our goal in taking care of patients is not only to try and help the patient with their symptoms, but also help the future. And, and we view clinical trials as an opportunity uh, for to do that.
0: Yeah. yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I, I think that it's so um, important to... Um, participate in the clinical trials. I mean, Dan really said it said it right. Um, there are so many drugs that are being tested now, ready for testing, and um, it's really important that each one of these studies meets their enrollment goals. Um, and and we need to enroll in those studies as quickly as we can too, so that we can get some answers and kind of move on from there. And I think you know m- most patients know that um, there are strict steps that we have to go to to get a drug approved, to bring it to the FDA, and to and to really uh, see whether or not it's it's actually useful, to get it approved by them. Um, but time is critical, and I think that, um, as many people have said, every day matters. We really need to try and fill the clinical trials that there are now uh, so that we can find out whether or not these compounds uh, are keepers, and, and I think that that's really an important thing. I know sometimes... Patients will come to our center and say that they want to participate in one trial or another, or they're not sure they want to participate in in a certain trial. And and you know I think part of the thing that we try to spend a lot of time doing is encouraging patients to to participate in any way they can in trials um, because. Um, we you know, most people can't participate in the trials. You have to have HD in order to be able to answer these critical questions. Uh, and so we really beg of the community to, to come out and support these efforts so that we can get these answers uh, and try to move on.
2: Yeah, yeah that's a great point, Jodi. The other point I'd make just on top of that is that, you know, one of the things that we – um, no, notice in the in some of the recent trials we've done is how long these trials go on for. I mean, some of them go on for a really long time. And you know, sometimes patients are uh, not willing to give that time commitment, sometimes they are. But really when we talk with patients about some of these really long trials, we really try and make sure we communicate with them uh, accurately, as best we can, that the commitment, of doing these trials and sometimes it takes a long time and you have to come every month and it's really frustrating but um, just knowing about the length of time and what you have to do for a trial is really important especially when you're trying to test important things like can we slow the progression of a disease or can we change the biology of Huntington's disease yeah and
0: and and dan Dan brings up a really important point um uh, about the requirements you know for for the study. Some patients are surprised to find that we can't actually change things to allow them to participate, so we follow a you know a pretty strict um template, a pretty strict guideline. Uh, that tells us, you know, the age of someone. For example, they have to be a certain age and they can't be older than another age or they have to have a certain amount of disability or a certain amount of cognitive problems. And sometimes people are upset with us and they'll say, you know, um, well, how come you know me? How come you can't just let me participate? So it's, it's, it's really um, a very strict um, guideline that we use and that we have to work under. Uh, and so once that's set out, uh, set out by the sponsor, um, and then also, you know, with the approval of the FDA, because the FDA actually looks at that, too, and gives their okay for it to proceed, um, those are actually things that we have to follow. So, well, you know, um, I think like Dan, we spend a lot of time talking about what the requirements are going to be, and that, unfortunately, there's going to need to be, you know, an, an MRI every so often, or people have to come with another person um, uh, in order to participate, someone who could, you know, provide information, for example, or, you know, lots of, you know, different things. And each one of them, I mean, a lot of the things are similar from one study to another, but each study seems to have its own little, you know, funny things that, that we have to exactly follow. Really, really, truly letter of the law when we sort of do these things.
1: Yeah. And one thing um, that Dr. Clawson said in the, in, when he was talking about, you know, my, my family, my husband, and my children, we participated in seven clinical trials um, throughout the, the, the course of our journey. And um, the one thing is we really enjoyed being there. And um, mm-hmm. I think Dr. when he said it's kind of a family affair. We loved the care we got. We would be able to go see our whole team. We'd see Dr. Wheelock, and we'd see all these different people that normally we would see in the clinical setting, but it was a different setting, and, we really enjoyed being part of clinical trials, um, but I think it's also the show is so important to understand what, uh, you know, this is being a part of a clinical trial, first of all, we thank everyone who does clinical trials, of course, but it's also, you know, it's a responsibility to be a part of a clinical trial uh, because the future generations depend on the research that, are done to, that is done today. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about what can make or break a clinical trial and what makes a clinical trial valid.
2: So uh, I'll start by trying to address this really good, important question. So I think one of the important things about the question of what can make or break a clinical trial is really the ability to make sure you get through the entire of the trial, you know, duration as best you can. I mean there are things that happen and, and you know the informed consent that's the you know the process that you know, we make sure you understand all about the trial, you understand all the risks, you agree to it. I mean, that's, a, that's not just a one-time thing. It's something that we go through every time we see a patient. But really what can make a break a trial is, is staying through to the end. I think, you know, sometimes it gets tiring and you kind of feel frustrated about staying in this trial, like I said earlier, that may last a year or two. But I think really one of the things that makes a break a trial is, is sticking to it and going all the way through to the end of it. Uh, sometimes making sure you take your medications, making sure you uh, respond um, honestly as best you can to some of the questionnaires—they can be sometimes challenging. One of the things we joke about in our in our clinical trial team is we talk to patients about some of the psychiatric uh, questionnaires that we ask them. We always say, "Now, I'm not going to say you're going to have this symptom one day. I'm just want to know right now, you know, is this are you struggling with this or that?" And, so just being really honest with uh, the, the, the care team and, and what's going on with your mood and your, and your symptoms is really important as well. So my, my two points, staying sticking to it, sticking through the trial, even when it's you may be tired or frustrated, and being really honest and sticking with um, uh, you know, what the trial requires are the most important things in my opinion that could make or break a trial.
0: Now, those are excellent points, Daniel. I I think um, what you're really talking about and stressing is is retention. I think that's the word, retention. And, you know, when we look at clinical trials, when we look at the results of them when they're published, probably one of the first things we look at is, um, you know, what was the retention rate? Or, you know, when we look at the number of people who started a trial and then the number of people who actually finished the trial, if they aren't close, then we sort of are a little suspect about the results because we worry that people who dropped out of the trial uh, or who didn't finish the trial, um, that those people might actually skew the results in some way. Okay. So it is mm. really, really important that that people who start a trial, you know, stay in the trial. And, of course, we know things happen. I mean, life happens and certain times, you know, people can't. But, but I think going in the plan should be to sort of, you know, stick with it. And And I think – Boy, we are lucky. The HD community has been amazing. I mean, I think it's pretty rare, and I bet you at Daniel's site too. It's pretty rare that people don't stick with the whole trial. And and I'm uh, sometimes I look and I think, wow, you get an extra hug because I mean, it's just sometimes people will actually go through even bad periods um, in a in a long trial, like a year or two years, um, and yet they'll still make sure they come and they come to those visits and and they they try to do everything that's sort of asked of them. Along with the protocol, so so that's that is one amazing thing, and I think the other the other thing I would just mention would be meeting in the enrollment goals, you know, right from the start. So sometimes. Um, uh, different communities, not the HD community, but I think different communities will you know not get behind a study um, and and when that happens you 're sometimes finding yourself struggling to find patients for for a different clinical trial, so um, sometimes recruitment can drag on for for a year or two before you actually even enroll all the patients that you actually need for a trial, and sometimes along the way. Um, uh, investigators have to even change the uh, enrollment uh, guidelines just just to try and, and meet uh, their enrollment goals. And, and that's usually a bad thing because then usually at the end you can't tell if you've done something like that whether or not that altered the results. So I would add that, that really um, meeting your enrollment goal, in other words, getting people enrolled in the study, getting, you know, good patients who are going to follow through, enrolled as quickly as possible, really helps a lot, because that helps with the timelines, and that actually helps you to complete the trial, you know, on time, um, and, 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 of course, you know, with everybody or most of the people you started with, those are really the important things for, for making a good clinical trial, I think.
2: Yeah, it's, it's probably worthwhile just to remind folks, you know, how we come up with those enrollment numbers. And, and the idea of what, you know, you know, there's a statistician that says, you know, I need to have at least this many people in order for us to see if there's a response or to see if this therapy is providing a, a benefit or not. And, if you know, if we don't hit that enrollment, then we can sometimes have a false uh, negative, which means that we have not shown that the therapy works when actually it might or it does. We just don't have enough people to get it in in the trial to, to actually make that assumption. So there is a lot of math that goes behind these enrollment numbers and, and these decisions to, for how many people to get in a trial. So there is method behind what seems like a little bit of madness on the on the back end in terms of how <laughs> many people we want and why we want them for so long. Yeah,
1: and I, I thought this was really in, in Austin, we had uh, Genentech spoke for us um, on the new, uh, the Genentech Roast Trial. And um, you know, someone, one of the questions in the audience cause, was, you know, how long is this gonna, you know? And he said twenty-five months, and we are so lucky. Um, and he was an amazing speaker, but we're so lucky that we have, you know, on our board of directors, Terry Temkin, who is fantastic and understands like, okay, this question needs to go a little further. And she kind of, she kind of stood up and said, you guys have to understand, twenty-five minutes of I mean, twenty-five months from enroll from the last enrollment. It's not like twenty-five months and then we're done. These trials have to be enrolled. And, um, and I think that's really important because not only is the scientific world and the sponsors looking at this, but more so than anything, the community is. We're watching and we're waiting for, for therapies and treatments. And, um, and so we have to understand that until those trials are fully enrolled and then, you know, those outcomes are measured and goes to regulatory, this is a huge process. Um, so we have to enroll these trials or they said. Um, and so, us sitting waiting for outcomes, and waiting for those therapies, and waiting for that treatment, um, when it takes a really long time. Sometimes it's because they aren't they aren't fully enrolled, um, and they have to be. Um, so. And
0: that's true. I'd like to go yeah. back to something you mentioned, though, because I think that was really important, and I think a lot of patients say that to us too. You know, along the way, while you're enrolled at the trial. Um, you're probably doing pretty well for some of the reasons you just mentioned. You really enjoyed coming to the center and you really enjoyed seeing such good docs and such good support team, et cetera, while you were there. Um, I think um, most clinical trials or in most fields have shown that patients who participate in clinical trials, no matter what they get, if they get the placebo or if they get the active drug, actually do better than the natural population. And I think the reason for that is that they are getting very high-quality care. They are being examined and checked and looked at frequently. They're feeling good. They're feeling really positive about participating in the project, um, you know, doing something positive, doing something hopeful. So even though it sounds like, you know, is 25 months, a long time, and it's 25 months from, the end of enrollment of the last patient and, and then maybe even a little bit longer before the data gets cleaned and analyzed and all that, the truth of the matter is that, that, that while you're participating in that trial, you're probably doing reasonably well, believe it or not. And, and, and I think mm-hmm. most patients tell us how much they enjoy trials. And, and when they come to an end, they're sad and they want to join another one. So I think that's, the, that's a great thing.
1: Yeah, no, we absolutely like being with you guys. There's no doubt about it. I I actually, um, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Croy Bloom, I actually had a a patient who's a dear friend of mine um, call me, and and they were in Southern California, uh, more L.A. area, and then they ended up going to San Diego. and. They called and they said, do you know Dr. Jenny Koi Bloom? And I said, oh, yes, I've met her at meetings. She is awesome. Oh, my gosh, we're so excited. We found her. Aww. You know, it's like we enjoy being with you guys. We really do. Aww. I mean, Dr. Wheelock, if I could take her home with me, I'd be with her every day. Um, <laughs> so we really do. So that makes sense that people would do better. Because when you get good care, you really do enjoy being with your doctors. And, um, yeah. and I think that is something very unique about HD is that we have very passionate um, really good neurologists, so we are st- we are very lucky, um, I think, compared to a lot of communities that we have very passionate docs after us, watching after us. Um,
2: I had okay. one little point so, on top of that quickly is that uh-huh. I want yeah. to make sure patients know that as physicians, we learn so much from what they tell us. Um, I mean, as a HD doctor who you know, who um, I've been doing trials, I learn more from talking to patients about their symptoms, what they're going through, what are the issues that they're having, and it helps me be a better doctor. So, you know, we're talking about clinical trials as as, as the end point is is most important in getting through the trial, what makes a break or trial, all those things. But also on the backside, listening to our patients and you teaching us about what issues bother you and how we can be better physicians for you, how we can build teams that meet your needs better – I don't discredit that, and a lot of that happens in these clinical trials where we see you each month and we develop really good relationships with you and talk about the things that are, that are bothering you. So I, I would look at it both ways, too.
0: Right. Yeah. Good point, Dana. Yeah. yeah.
1: So um, let's talk about um, how, if there's an outcome. So um, if the outcome of the study, um, of the effective treatment goals of the study are not met,
2: So I guess because I've started first, I've got to answer this hard question first. So um, I'll start framing my answer by saying let me just, you know, just review the difference between a primary outcome and a secondary outcome because sometimes those things are confusing. So, you know, when you design a clinical trial, you want to basically test a hypothesis. You know, you want to say, for instance, if this, if I give this, Uh, therapy A to patients, then it will reduce the severity of their motor symptoms in Huntington's disease. And so you will test that hypothesis by setting up a primary objective or a primary outcome, which in, in the case that I've given an example here is some measurement of how bad a motor symptom is in Huntington's disease. And so that's kind of your your primary objective in terms of your primary hypothesis. And then you may have secondary things that you're also interested in, like how does your motor symptoms relate to your ability to um, brush your teeth or comb your hair or other things that may not be entirely related to that primary objective. But um, generally speaking, you know, you, the, each trial has one primary objective or one specific hypothesis that they're designing to, te- to test. So, so if the goal, if the treatment goals are not met, then that primary objective won't be, uh, won't be quote unquote positive. For instance, you know, if I, in in my example, if I show that therapy A and placebo show no difference in the improvement of motor symptoms, then 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 I haven't shown that that therapy is beneficial for the movement symptoms in Huntington's disease. So I haven't shown that that therapy appears beneficial. And so we use clinical trials. To give us guidance on whether or not a therapy is helpful, and we compare it to placebo or or not, you know, sugar pill, whatever it ends up being, as a, as a way to to scientifically um, uh, rigorously test that hypothesis. So, if the outcome is not met, it means that that therapy doesn't appear to show a clear benefit. Now, sometimes you may not show a clear benefit for the primary objective, but there may be a secondary objective that shows an effect that make makes the that makes you say, well, gosh, maybe we looked at the wrong thing or we need to redesign the trial another way. And there are, there are many examples in Huntington's disease where there's been a therapy that's been tried multiple times in different trials to try and to try and truly test whether or not it has a therapeutic uh, purpose. But ultimately, the primary outcome measure is what we use to determine whether or not the, the therapy is beneficial or not to patients.
0: Yeah, and, and following up on that, um, this this primary outcome measure this is actually required by the FDA so um sometimes patients will say to me well how come you can't just look at something else you know like you told me that it did affect memory or cognition but it didn't benefit you know, the motor exam, for example, that, that Dr. Klossman was just talking about. Um, I think the problem is we can't just switch that. We can't ourselves say, okay, well, it didn't it didn't benefit the motor symptoms, but it does benefit the memory symptoms or the cognitive symptoms, so, you know, we're going to say it's successful. Unfortunately, the FDA requires uh, a primary objective to be stated and decided upon way in advance, and so if that that primary objective isn't met, then the trial is considered a negative trial, even if 19 other secondary objectives, you know, are um, met. And so, you know, it is important uh, how, or exactly how that primary objective or, or which primary objective is chosen um, and usually they're chosen for very good reasons, so it's not right. like it's just pulled, pulled out of the air. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I would say there is one study, for example, now that we're, we're going to be starting that has two different objectives. It has a different objective in Europe than it has in the United States. So that's kind of an interesting situation, and that doesn't happen very often. The mm-hmm. primary objective for the same study in the U.S. is going to be different for the same study in Europe. So the primary objectives will be different. So I don't know how that's going to go, but we'll all stay tuned and try and figure that out. But I think it it is really um, important, Dr. Clausen brought up before, the fact that, you know, the number of patients that they decide to enroll has a lot to do with the study's primary objective. So, um, for the upcoming Roche study, as, as people just mentioned, I think there's something like six hundred and sixty patients that are going to be enrolled totally throughout the world, and that number was chosen so that um, it would be you know statistically possible to to have an effect on the primary objective with that number of patients so if we don't enroll enough patients, then it may be that we don't see a benefit on that primary objective, but it may be because there aren't enough patients or it may be because people didn't follow the protocol carefully or something like that or patients dropped out. So those are all of the kinds of things that can really affect the outcome of a study. Um, and, and you know, most of the time it's through, through you know, no malicious intent, you know, at all. It's just that these are very, very specific Uh, quantified things and so um, studies can fail even if they have a potential to be a helpful thing.
2: That's really well put, Jody. I appreciate you putting it that way. I want to just comment quickly on one of the things that's come up in our center and and I don't know if you've noticed this as well, Jody, but um, one of the things that we've noticed a lot of patients struggling with is the idea that if I don't get in a clinical trial, I'm not availing myself to a possible cure for my disease or a possible therapy for my disease. And so we've noticed a couple times, especially with some of the really well-publicized trials that are going on now, that some patients may say, gosh, if I don't get in this trial, then I'm missing out on a chance to cure my Huntington's disease or I'm Mm. missing out on a really Mm. important thing. And I really want to just make a little bit of a – uh, just take a little bit of time to, to to really encourage people that these are trials because we don't know if they work or they don't. These primary objectives are really are really because we don't know the answer. When we're doing this, we think we might have a we have an answer because of the hypothesis. But they're not the same thing as uh, getting a therapy. It may be the movies or you know the, the movies of the person getting a cancer therapy and then getting cured. Maybe that is part of it that makes us think that these are are the same thing as cures, but I, I do want to encourage folks that, you know, not every trial is for you and not every trial is a cure and not every trial is a therapy that you're not getting. Uh, and and just encourage folks that there's a process and it's sometimes tedious and, and it takes longer than you want it to, but ultimately what we want to do is provide safe, effective care to, th- to patients, and we, the only way to do that is through this, this clinical trial process.
0: Well said, Daniel. Um, actually, I just want to I want to follow up on that just a little bit too because you know I think it's important to remember that clinical trials are not treatment trials. They're not mm. treatment trials. Okay, they are. They're places to test um, compounds to see what kind of an effect they have, and it's it's a a very careful. Uh, well-regulated environment in which these compounds are being tested. but They're being tested in humans and we're sort of looking to see what the effects are. Does it affect motor symptoms? Does it affect cognition or memory? Does it affect people's abilities to do things? And so we're blinded. We don't know what people are on. Some people are on placebo. Some people are on the active compound. Um, And so we, and, and we're purposely blinded so that we won't in any way be biased to kind of say, oh yeah, I think they're a little better or something like that. So I think it's important to realize that these are not treatments trials, not at this point in time. At this point in time, I look at them as kind of testing protocols, you know, and so we're really testing a compound, we're looking at it, we're getting an opportunity to kind of see how it affects people, is it safe, does it have any effect on all of the abilities that we just talked about, and how do people do, can they... Um, Can they tolerate the way it's being given? You know, is this something that they can do for the long term? And all of those kinds of things. Or or might we be able to, to give it in a different way? You know, those kinds of things. So I think it's so important. I would just plea with everyone, you know, join whatever trial you can. Don't hold out for one or another. But join whatever trial you can because we need to enroll all of them so that we can get all of this information and kind of see where we stand. I really do believe that mm-hmm. the the treatments for HD for the future are probably going to be combination therapies, so we need all of this medication, and we need all of these clinical trial results. Um, I think that it, probably um, people will take um, what we call disease-modifying therapies or therapies that might slow the progression of disease. Um, you know, and then and maybe more symptomatic therapies, and maybe people will take a combination of both. Um, I could imagine I could see at, at a time in the future that uh, especially if we're able to tell when someone's within five or ten years of developing signs of Huntington's, that maybe it will be possible in the future to give them um, a drug or a, a compound that um, I don't know, might might just slow the progression. You know, even before they have symptoms, we might be able to give them compounds like that, and maybe there'll be other compounds that people will take once they become symptomatic. You know, something more like Osteto, for example, um, that people take for Korea. So I think it's really important that we kind of enroll all of these trials right now because there's just so many possibilities. And I think um, we have to test each one of these individually before we're going to have the opportunity to even look at them in combination. It's a lot of work ahead of all of us, but we really need, yeah. we really need you guys in, in all of these trials. Well, and you brought up something by talking
1: about a lot of trials right now and a lot of things coming up, and it's such exciting times for all of our community, but we hear this a lot about people say, well, I don't know if I want to join this trial because I want to join this trial, and I don't want to join this because maybe I want to do this. And one thing you did say is that you have to remember this is all research. This is not, you know, you don't know you may be getting placebo. Um, You know, we don't know what's happening. This is all for research and to prove efficacy and, and safety and tolerability with the FDA. Now, right. with, that, with that being said, what about people that um, are in a trial and during their participation, um, you know, they, they, they want to talk to someone about another trial? Or how, what is the best way for patients um, to do something like that that, are, that they want to look at another trial or they want to talk about other? And what is, what's the best way to go about that?
0: Well, I mean, I think, you know, well, I would say some general things first. I would say the general things that I would say first are it's not a great idea to drop out of a trial for all the reasons that we sort of have talked about. Um, That trial was powered initially. Um, it, it, It needed the number of people that started the trial to finish the trial. It could be that if we lose a a significant percentage of the patients in the trial that we may not be able to answer the question at all. And so all of that work by all of those people for 2 years or 3 years or whatever it is a year, you know, may be for naught because the the trial ends up being underpowered. So I would really urge I know people at my site for sure I always talk to them about just staying with it, sticking with a trial that they're in because it can have devastating consequences to leave the trial you're in early. So that would be the first general comment I would make. You know, I think also um, realize that that not everybody meets criteria for other trials, and so um, it's it's important if you can to stay with the trial that you're in because you did meet criteria for that trial, and so it's important for you to stay there. Um, sometimes people don't think about it, but once they drop out of a study, you can't. They can't go back in. You can't replace them usually it's too far along to replace people so it really leaves a, a, a kind of a a, a gaping a gaping hole there and so you know it's just really really important um that people try to stay with the trial that that they're in i think if anybody has concerns along the lines that you mentioned it would be the first thing i would recommend is that they go and talk to the, the PI at the site where they are participating in a trial. Because I think that's really a first good place to kind of sit down and have a real heart to heart.
2: Yeah, and maybe yeah. I would I would add a little bit that you may you may want to understand what's the motivation for you to want to be on a different trial than the one you're in. So as I said earlier, you know, if you're thinking that, gosh, if I'm not involved in this trial then I'm not getting a therapy where I'm not getting a chance to cure my disease. If that's what the motivation is, then I would maybe sit with you and talk with you about clinical trials and that they're they're really we don't know what the results gonna be. We think it might be one way, but it's not, you know, necessarily a treatment or not. So I may I may want to spend some time just exploring some of the motivations for for what's making you think about another trial. The other point I'd make about um about these trials is that there are new trials all the time. And, and you know, especially in Huntington's, we are, um, it's such an exciting time in Huntington's disease to be involved in so many different ways of, of combating this, this dreadful disease. And one of my super smart um, research nurses uh, talks to patients and she says, you know, we want to make Huntington's disease like diabetes where it's like a chronic condition. And I, and I really like that analogy in that one of these days, that, you know, it may be that you're on two or three different medications. You take your insulin, you take your ex- other, you know, medications and, and such so that we make this a chronic uh, condition. And I think the only way we can do that is by truly assaying how these therapies, therapies work and how these uh, clinical trials read out.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you guys both so much for coming on the show today. There's really exciting things um, on the horizon. We are really excited about everything going on at HSG. And I am really excited that you guys are coming to the West Coast this year. I'm excited to see everyone <laughs> in November. Um, to find out it was in Sacramento it was very exciting for all of us here um, in Northern California. So we are very much looking forward for you guys all heading our way this year, and um, so all of our listeners in uh, California, um, well, and, and other places that uh, close that you can travel in HSC, their annual meeting, which is fantastic. They they host an amazing family day. Um, it's just every year it, it blows me away. Um,
2: it,
1: it is here in Sacramento, California. So um, it is in November. And um, I'm blanking on the exact dates. Do you guys have the exact dates of that meeting? It's usually the second weekend in November, isn't it? Or first weekend? I was
0: usually going to say it's usually like something like November sixth to the eighth or something. Um,
1: yeah.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, something
1: like that. And the, f- and the family day is always on the final day of the meeting, um, the and the Saturday. brings in researchers. Yeah, the Saturday. So, um, we will be blasting that out everywhere. We'll be putting it on our email list and um, everything to let uh, all of our platforms to let you guys know um, about that day and what's going on as well as closed. the agenda. It so. looks like
0: it's the 7th to the 9th, November 7th to the 9th.
1: In to the ninth. So, the 9th will be Family yeah. Day. Perfect.
0: Yeah. the 9th. Cool. Perfect.
1: So we are we are excited to have you guys. Um, just a couple of quick announcements, you guys. Tune in next week where we, um, we are going to have a, a show on genetic testing. It's with Maddie Ellison from HDO. They just did this really cool new program, and they, they have videos of um, people uh, that um, have tested for HD, uh, young people and their feelings on it and what their process looks like and then people who haven't and what their feelings are. So it's a really great program. Um, that HDO has now introduced to their organization. So um, tune in to hear Matt uh, talk about that next week. Uh, we also, the week after, we have a show on IVF PGD. It's a, a new organization called Help Cure HD Now. Um, they actually came out of Austin. Um, he is actually a pitcher for the Austin Astros. And they just made this really great uh, foundation that is actually helping p- uh, families pay for IV- IVF PDG. Um, so uh, tune in for that show. Our final show is Reso- Resources in Arkansas. We are really excited. Uh, Health for HD, we have 350 episodes available on iTunes at Blog Talk. We notice that people come to from our community come to this radio show for resources. So, um, unfortunately, by state-by-state, by state, resources vary, and they're different. So we launched this year that we're going state-by-state. State. We did Alabama last um, month with Dr. Sung. This month we are doing Arkansas. So we are very excited. We're, it looks like we're going in alphabetical order and looks like we're going strong. We are, we're actually on our second show, um, so that's good. Um, we just got back like from Texas. Our next live event is until Puerto Rico. So we'll be in Puerto Rico in May, um, May 4th. Um, so anyone in Puerto Rico, please come out and see us. And then we will be in Wichita on August 10th. Um, we are really excited to go to Kansas. And then we will wrap up our kind of education uh, day uh, tour in Las Vegas. Um, and that will be in October. So all those are free to our community. As always, any Help for HD event is 100% free to our HD community. Um, and we also give scholarships to help families come in. It also always goes virtual so you can always watch it from the comfort of your own home. Um, Austin is already up. Pictures are up on SmugMug, and we will be getting on all social media platforms. Austin is up, and we will be putting it on YouTube and Vimeo uh, by the end of next week. Um, I am off right now to go exhibit at the California State Law Enforcement uh, Chief of Police Association annual meeting where we will come in contact with thousands of California law enforcement leadership to teach them about Huntington's disease. Um, and we will be launching our EMT and fire program this year. Uh, we just finished filming those videos. So watch out for that, and we will also be exhibiting at their meetings as well uh, to teach them about Huntington's. I think that is it. Thank you guys both so much for coming on the wow. show. You guys tune in. You are,
0: awesome Katie. <laughs> you are you awesome, Katie. Thank you. You awesome. I will see you guys in November. <laughs> All okay. Right. Thank Thanks, everyone, everybody. also, for participating. Bye. Thank you.